Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden, the podcast that takes you from about 13,000 BCE when the first humans arrived here up to the present day. This is episode 40, Beer Your Yarl or Beer Your King. Indeed it is, and uh, we will try and answer that question. But before we get on to the story of Bayal, we need to do our Swedish phrase of the week, which this time is Ord och inga visor. Would you like to explain this one also? I would. Literally, it translates to English as words and no folk songs. Visa, or plural, visor, is a, a word for Swedish folk songs. They can be modern as well, but... Swedish folk songs. The meaning has very little to do with that, though. Ord och inga visor is a firm directive, an order, or signifying that something is serious. It is words and no folk songs. This is a serious order. For example, you could say that, oh, uh, the CEO of our company sent round an email saying that everyone has to work in the office from the 1st of August, no exceptions. Then you can react to that email and say, wow, that was ordo ingaviso. That was words and no folk songs. This is serious. Yeah, and you can say that yourself saying something, can you? So you can say, come into the office on the 1st of August that is words and no folk songs. I think it's maybe less used reflecting on something you, you've said yourself, but you, you can say it like that. Sure. Cool. Well, um, someone who definitely gave a few firm directives and orders was Birger Jarl. And uh, so we'll do a very short recap on Birger Jarl's life so far. Uh, last time we covered the period from about 1250 to 1258, so not very long at all in chronological time. It's actually probably the shortest period that we've dedicated a whole episode mm -hmm. to. We started last week with Birger Jarl becoming Jarl and installing his son Valdemar as king. His daughter was married to the co-king of Norway, Håkon the Young, as a way to tie Sweden and Birger to Norway and Håkon's dad and main king, Håkon the Old. They needed this alliance as the Danish king Arbel was standing by and letting Danish pirates raid all over the Baltic Sea, attacking Norwegian, Swedish and German trading ships and generally causing a bit of nuisance. This was particularly annoying for Berger Jarl, who was working hard to formalise Sweden's relationship with the German traders from the Hanseatic League, especially those coming from Lübeck. We saw the war that never was, as Sweden ducked out of a war between Norway and Denmark right before it was about to begin, because the Danish king Arbil died, so Berger Jarl didn't seem to care too much about fighting his successor as king of Norway, Arbil's brother, Christopher I. The Scandinavian neighbours settled their differences a few years later and King Valdemar was married to the niece of King Christopher in Denmark, a woman called Sophia, and Sophia's sister, Ingeboy, married a Norwegian prince. So nice and tidy, marriages all around, wars avoided, or at least postponed for a bit. Bjørjøjal is truly in charge of Sweden by now. He defeated a further Folkung rebellion in the last episode, so he is safe from all angles, really. 
Internal resistance has been swept aside. Rich German traders are helping to kickstart new cities like Stockholm. And Bialyal's children are securely married to key people across the region. But this matchmaking isn't all that Bialyal has in store for his kids. In 1255, he decides he's going to make his sons dukes, a title we haven't seen in Sweden up to this point. It's not really clear what this meant in practice. The children were still very young, and Birger didn't seem interested in actual power sharing because he's very much still the one who rules. But nonetheless, it's a way to further solidify power within his own family as eventually these titles of dukes will inherit more power and prestige, and it also makes his sons part of the state apparatus and the nobility. It is also a way of legitimising the whole family and ensuring that they are following the examples of countries like England and France where dukedoms are very much a big thing and a title to be desired which comes with power, prestige and military responsibilities. His eldest son Valdemar is king, so he doesn't need to become a duke, but his second and third sons, Magnus and Eric, both become dukes of Sweden. Interestingly enough, they are actually called Dukes of Sweden rather than, say, the Duke of Stockholm or the Duke of Vermland. One person who thinks that handing out dukedoms is a great idea is actually Pope Alexander IV. Like we've said many times in previous episodes, the Pope and the papacy in itself is more than just a religious authority. They are very much a political power in Europe at this point, involved in every country across this pan-European Catholic network of states. Birger seems to have appreciated what a good thing it was to have the Pope on his side, and so he's quite keen to do things that he thinks they will like. And it seems to have paid off because the Pope doesn't just express approval with this move to make all his sons dukes, but already back in 1252, Pope Innocentius IV wrote a letter to all Swedish bishops that clearly stated they should support the king and the jarl. At the same time, Birger is very careful to not let the church get too powerful in Sweden when it comes to domestic affairs. In general, he was wary not to let anyone in Sweden get too powerful, unless of course that was him. After his crushing defeat of the Falcon rebellions, the Swedish nobility and other powerful families in Sweden knew better than to try and contest or rival his power in any way. Noble families and members of the clergy seem to have either worked to get in Birger's good books or become one of his crowd, so to speak. Failing that, they stayed quiet and waited, perhaps thinking that, of course, no man can live forever, and it would be better to wait than to try anything whilst he was still around. As a consequence, Birger was well-liked among the general public, even though that term wasn't used at the time, but farmers, craftsmen, traders, they all liked him because he maintained the peace. In particular, he maintained domestic peace. And their lives were so much better when there was peace and they could focus on plowing, sewing, making shoes, selling hides to Germany and do all those other things that meant that they lived well, they lived undisturbed. Some of you might think uh, at this point, well, we haven't seen anything going on in the East for a while now. Has Birger given up on his expansion to the East that he tried previously? 
And the answer is he most certainly has not. Continued expansion eastwards is good for access to more raw material and more trading locations in addition to more farming products, and that in turn is good for trade. And we know how much BAR likes to trade and invite traders to Sweden. And so it's in 1256 that it's time for another campaign east of the Baltic. And this is actually happening effectively at the same time as the drama, as the war that never was, and all the the goings-on with Norway and Denmark. We don't know when in the year, but probably in the summer of 1256. And using the fact that Sweden has already got an established presence in southern Finland, a force consisting of Swedes... Tarvasts, Finns and Didman, they crossed the Gulf of Finland heading for Narva, the furthest eastern point in modern-day Estonia. Now, in that group, uh, Swedes and Finns, that's not hard to guess who they are, Tarvasts, that's people from an area called Tavastia, or Tarvastaland, if you're more familiar with the Swedish term, Either way, it's an area in south-central Finland. And the fourth in that group, Didman, well, we have no idea who or what that is. It sounds like it could just be a guy called Didman. Yeah, yeah. it's like, the names, Swedes, hundreds of people, and then just Didman is also here. I am here. Um, <laughs> but uh, later historians have speculated that Didman might refer to a group of German knights, uh, because it's a German name rather than just one individual person. It would be a bit weird uh, if that was the case. It would be so, so much fun if the Swedes and the Finns and Tarvast, they'd all sort of organized this and then one German bloke called Didman shows up and no, everyone's kind of annoyed, but he insists that he should be part of this. Indeed. Um, What we do know is that this campaign to Narva is pretty much a complete failure. Um, They get to the banks of the Narva River and start to build a fortress there, but as soon as they hear the first rumours that Novgorod, that mighty city-state nearby, is gathering a force to attack them, well, they just give up and flee. In the winter of 1256-1257, the Novgorodians, led by Prince Alexander Nevsky, already once a victor over Beryagov's expedition many years previously, attacks Tavastia in southern Finland to avenge the attack in the summer. But this doesn't seem to have been very successful either, and in general, the whole thing just seems to have fizzled out and resulted in no real political or territorial changes. In fact, the only real source we have for these two events, just like last time, is the Novgorod Chronicle. It's not mentioned in any Swedish sources. Perhaps they thought it was such a failure they'd rather just not mention it at all. They should have just blamed it all on Didman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Didman, you ruined this. It was all dead man's fault. Excellent scapegoat. However, it doesn't mean that Sweden withdraws from the east of the Baltic Sea completely. Oh no, Birger is still very much keen on maintaining and strengthening their presence in what is today Finland. But there are no real attempts to go much further east. Perhaps Bjorjol realised that he had met his match in the mighty Novgorod and that it was best to just solidify power over the areas he already controlled, which by now is essentially most of the southern parts of modern-day Finland. 
Birio also invites Finns to come and live in Sweden, and just like with the Germans, he decides that they will be treated no different in the eyes of the law than native Swedes. Uh, the same rules apply to all, that is Birio's philosophy. And it's not just Finns who are invited to come to stay in Sweden, because these two are now connected. There is a continued organic immigration of Finns to Sweden and indeed vice versa, Swedes migrating to Finland. But Birja can't get too bogged down with what's going on east because in 1258 it's time to turn our attention back westwards again for, you guessed it, more trouble with Denmark and Norway. Yeah, these marriages never seem to keep things uh, peaceful for too long, do they? <laughs> Such a useless idea. Travel's never far away when these three get together. Although this time it starts off very friendly for a change. We're not going to go into all the details because we're not a history of Denmark, but Denmark is undergoing a very tumultuous time domestically with different groups of people fighting for the throne. In the spring of 1258, we get to that meeting that Birja has with his Norwegian and Danish counterparts, King Håkon and King Christopher, and this is the meeting where Birja marries off his son Valdemar to the Danish princess Sophia. Exactly. But the meeting isn't just an elaborate matchmaking session. They also decide that the Swedes and the Norwegians are going to help support the Danish king with his domestic problems and help him stay on the throne. This is because after having three successive brothers as king, Denmark is starting to become a bit unstable with, like Chris said, various factions trying to uh, compete and be the ruler. However, Sweden and Norway don't get much chance to help uh, Danish King Christoffel shore up his position because just one year later, in 1259, he dies. This only makes the political crisis in Denmark worse and Bjørjøl heads south, or maybe he sends his representatives, to support the Regency Council that's put in place in Denmark because the heir to the throne, Christoffel's son, Erik Klipping, well, he's only 10 years old. The Norwegians also honour their promise of support and send an entire fleet to help Denmark. So at least they're committed. You mm -hmm. can't, you can't uh, say they're not committed. Because uh, after all, Birger is now at least semi-related to this Danish royal family, since his son, King Valdemar, is married to the Danish princess Sophia, who is a cousin of this new boy, King Eric. Eventually, the noblemen and the clergy have been fighting the Danish royal family in this uh, sort of ongoing domestic dispute, make peace, and things eventually calm down a bit in Denmark. Or at least it's calm domestically, because Denmark still have an ongoing conflict with Schleswig, an area that's sort of half German, half Danish, and is always passing hands between the two groups of people. We know that in 1261, Birger sends a Swedish fleet down to Öresund. We don't know why he was doing this, or what the fleet did when they got there, but we know that this is the same year that the Danes are fighting a war against German knights over who gets control of Schleswig. So it's conceivable that the Swedish fleet was there to support the Danes in this effort. And that's what a lot of historians seem to conclude when looking at the timing of this event. But Birger is growing more and more restless with the Danes at this point. 
1260, Valdemar Sophia marry properly, even though it was decided a few years earlier, everyone involved had the decency to wait until the couple had turned 20, so they don't marry until 1260. Now, as part of the marriage, Birjor and the whole Swedish royal family is expecting Sophia to bring with her a large dowry and inheritance. Sophia is the daughter of a former king and cousin of the current king, so as such, she has got plenty of wealth to her name, mainly in the sense that she was due to receive the profit from certain estates and even from whole towns. Denmark is, as we said, now being ruled by a regency council and in particular by the widowed queen Margareta, who is the young King Eric V's mother. Margareta is naturally also Sophia's aunt, since Sophia's father, Eric IV, was Margareta's brother-in-law. Sorry, it is always complicated, these family relations, isn't it? Margareta seems to have ruled Denmark with an iron fist, and she doesn't seem to have been that fond of Birjol, to be honest. So she essentially holds most of Sophia's dowry and inheritance hostage in Denmark, not wanting it to go towards lining the coffers of Birjol and Sweden, regardless of whether there was a marriage alliance or not. If our exploration of Birger's life and rule so far has taught us anything, it's that he doesn't take kindly to people questioning his authority, and he's a man who likes to get what he wants. So it's clear that he's not going to let this thing with Denmark and Queen Margrethe just go on without him getting what he needs. Especially when he, or at least Valdemar, has actually been promised this dowry. It's not something that he just wants. He's actually been told he's going to receive it, and then is stopped from receiving it. So instead, he starts to align more and more with the Danes inside the kingdom who oppose the Danish royal family, and in 1261, he makes a shrewd move. As we know, Birger is a widow by now, and has been for quite a few years, so he thinks, maybe I should use this opportunity and remarry, and who better to remarry than someone those stupid Danish royal families who's keeping my money really don't like? Now, luckily, there's a perfect match available for him, a woman by the name of Metchild. Mathiel is not only the daughter of one of Denmark's main enemies at the time, Count Adolf IV of Holstein, another area just south of Denmark that there's always a lot of fighting over, but she's also the widow of King Arbel of Denmark. So, as the three brothers who were kings in Denmark didn't have the best of relationships, this is quite a bold move. Yeah, and so by marrying the former king's widow... Birger is really putting up quite a distinct middle finger to the current Danish rulers. I just love how this guy is so into using marriage as a political tool. He's like a one-man political medieval Tinder application, this guy. Yeah, because whilst we've seen previous kings do it once or twice, or maybe with just a few of their daughters, he's doing it with everyone. (laughs) But this marriage, when Birjol marries Metschild of Holstein, must have also created some drama at home, because Metschild is the aunt of Birjol's new daughter-in-law, now Queen Sophia. 
Now, like we said, Sophia's dad and Metchild's former husband were brothers, and they had constantly fought each other. In fact, back in 1250, Abel, Metchild's former husband, had his brother, Sophia's dad, Eric IV, murdered so he could take the throne himself. Yeah, that would create some awkward family dinners now they're all part of the same royal court and essentially living together a lot of the time. Yeah, you can't imagine Sophia was overjoyed when her father-in-law marries her father's murderer's ex-wife. Yeah, this is excellent, <laughs> excellent story. Uh, <laughs> but either way, Metchiel and Vera seem to have lived happily together. They seem to be both maybe schemey type people, <laughs> so they got on well together. Um, they don't actually have any children together, a fact that can easily be explained by the fact that Metchiel is in her late 40s when they marry and Vera's in his 50s or 60s, so that wouldn't even really work today. Um, the next couple of years seem to have passed by in relative tranquility for Vera. There were also some other marriages going on in the family too, though, so he didn't have nothing to do. There was still more marrying. Swipe! Swipe! Yep, swipe! Swipe! swipe check. His daughter, Rakissa, a widow herself after Håkon the Young of Norway died a few years previously, remarries. There's more connection with Germany this time as she marries Prince Henry of Verla, who is due to inherit a relatively large portion of the Holy Roman Emperor when his father dies. And this marriage takes place in 1262. Verla is just south of Monday Rostock, so it's quite important to keep up good relations with various regions of Germany, and this one's quite close to the coast, so it would help with trade with Sweden. Rikissa was following the example of her younger sister Katharina, who a few years earlier married Prince Siegfried of Anhalt Zerbst. <laughs> That's definitely a very German name coming in right now. Siegfried of Anhalt Zerbst. That's a good German name. It is, and the area that the Prince of Anhalt Zerbst was ruling over is just southwest of Berlin. So that's actually quite far down into Germany. This time, Berger's family aren't just marrying coastal Germans who will help with trade around the Baltic, but now he's spreading quite deep down into Europe itself. Katharina and Prince Siegfried will have ten children, and one of them will be his successor as Prince of Anhalt Zerbst. In the meantime, Birger shows no indication that he's slowing down, even if there aren't any great battles or campaigns and expeditions for him to go on, or anything else quite that dramatic. He's simply keeping hold of power, despite the fact that his son is now an adult at this point. He's not made his son an independent ruler. He's keeping him well under control back uh, in the royal court. Right now, Beryagar's power in the kingdom is so strong and solidified that in 1260 and 1261, he gets to make his own coins. This is a rather extraordinary thing to do, because remember, he's not actually the king, he's just still the Jarl. These coins do have a B on, uh, the letter B. They don't, as opposed to like the insect, a bumblebee. <laughs> that would be quite funny. Um, <laughs> he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who liked that sort of cutesiness. No. Um, so he doesn't have his face on, so he hasn't gone the whole hog. Um, and, and putting his face on, but he does have a B for Beard Jarl. And um, these coins are thought to have been minted at Lerdosa. I don't doubt that Beard thought it was pretty cool to have his own coins, but most historians have argued that his intention 
was not to make his coins as such, but rather to give the country one currency. That seems to be a, a bit odd. I don't, I don't truly follow that logic. Um, tell me more. <laughs> well, at this time, several different types of coins are being used, and there isn't one currency for the whole of the Swedish kingdom. In one area, they like to use these types of coins. Another area, they actually mainly used foreign coins. Uh, but Birjo, being so keen on good trade, saw that this was an issue and wanted to create that one unified currency. But others didn't seem to have thought that it was that important. Uh, in documents from the time, we see that coins and currencies were quite often mixed when making large purchases. Uh, so it would be like a if I went to the shop today and I paid in Swedish kroner dollars and pounds. Because what mattered in the late 1200s to people was the value of the silver that the coin was made from. Yeah, well, it's like in the Viking era where we saw those Arabic coins being found across in, in places like Birka. They, they weren't used because the Arabic caliphates were ruling in Birka, but it was just, oh, this is a nice piece of silver. It just happens to have some Arabic writing on it. It's not going to stop me from buying this cow. Yeah. Nonetheless, uh, this is another example of Birjol's continued work to unify things across Sweden. And we can only speculate that maybe he then puts a B on these coins just to stroke his own ego a bit. Uh, after all, the coins were his idea to begin with. Yeah, and uh, when he put the B on the coins, uh, it was because he wanted everyone to know that he was the hive of activity in Sweden. <laughs> I just thought of that. For the listeners, I just want to say that Chris is right now wearing the most satisfied grin on his face. Yes, and um, there, there really was a big buzz about the, when these coins were introduced. It really, uh, it really took the sting out of all the the difficulties using these different coins. I, I don't only make a podcast with this man. I also live with him, and and sometimes I really wonder why. It's 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 because of your excellent jokes. Yeah, uh, my bee-related pun jokes. Um, please move on with the story. Yes. When we get to the mid-1260s, Birger has been an influential figure in Swedish politics for over three decades now, when at the time we get to these coins appearing. He's been a Jarl for 18 years and de facto ruler of the whole country with his son as king for 11 of those years. Most historians agree that he makes Sweden a proper Catholic medieval kingdom in accordance with the Western European style. There are now knights in Sweden, there's a definite nobility with his sons taking on dignified European titles of dukes, and there are townsmen and traders from abroad coming in and making their lives and expanding the trade system in Sweden, there's a strong tax system, there's functioning minting of coins with his with his name on it and there are booming towns and stone fortresses being built all over the country and a solid Swedish presence in modern day Finland is taking hold too so everything is happening now 
Most of these things had existed in some shape or form, of course, before the yarn came around, but often to a much smaller, weaker and less consolidated sense before he was in charge. But it's through his rule and his politics that they become a fact of life in Sweden and are strengthened. Plus, the control of these aspects of the kingdom, all these different areas that previously had lots of individual people looking after them, they're now absolutely consolidated in one man, Birger Jarl. We haven't really talked about Birger Jarl as a lawmaker in any of the episodes about him. And that's because we covered these developments in the legal system extensively in our two-part episode about law and order. But Birger was instrumental in that development. Most importantly, he is the instigator behind the Fredslagar, the peace laws, this idea that some places and some people are protected in law. Similarly, he is the man behind the Edsöre laws, these laws that applied equally all over Sweden and not just in one county, and that applied to the peace laws as well. That really is his lasting legacy for justice in Sweden, this practice that law should apply equally everywhere and to everyone, that in and of itself brings a lot of unity to Sweden that previously didn't exist. Birger also institutes the idea that the role of the king is sanctified. Similar to the peace laws protecting people and places, the role of the king should also be protected. Now, as we'll see over the next couple of episodes, this works a whole lot better in theory than in practice. But nonetheless, it is Bjorjojal who comes up with the idea that the king should be under oath and that as part of that oath he should promise to protect and uphold the law. And thus the king starts to be seen as some sort of guardian of the law and the rule of the land. And let's remember, Bielio does all of this without even being king himself, ever. At some point, he also gives himself the title Duke of Sweden, and this ends up being the main title he uses to introduce himself in letters at the time, ahead of even his more familiar title as Jarl. Yes, the man who was never king himself, but no doubt ruled like no one has done before in Sweden, perhaps understandably only relinquished this power when his life ended. And it did on the 21st of October 1266. He had made his last major political act in the summer of that year when he met with a papal legate called Cardinal Guido in Kalmar. We know that there are many Swedish nobles present at that meeting, but unfortunately no record of what they discussed has survived. They clearly didn't know it was going to be his last big deal. No, and since we don't know when he was born, we don't know exactly how old Bjarjajal lived to be, but it's fair to assume that he was in his mid to late 60s when he died. We know that he dies at Järlbojung in Västergötland, but again, historians have not been able to identify where exactly that is located. Similarly, we don't know what he died from, but since no special record was made of the course of death, 
it's fair to assume that it was natural causes and the people at the time just didn't know why he was sick and died. There certainly wasn't one final great battle and he didn't die with his sword in his hand. Instead, he dies from natural causes and is survived by all his children and his second wife. Mitchild, who is now widowed for a second time, packs up her stuff and moves back to Denmark shortly after Biel dies. They will, however, be buried together when she eventually dies, but that's 22 years later. Yeah, that's quite a long time to wait. And speaking of the burial, Beer is buried at Varnum Abbey, as we mentioned uh, in the last episode about the, his giant unused golden tomb outside Stockholm City Hall. Yeah. Um, and uh, and because of that, the grave is still there at Varnum Abbey, so you can go and visit it. And that's because Varnum seems to have had a special place in Beer's heart, because throughout his life he's made several donations to the abbey there. It's located quite close to where he grew up and where his family, the Bielbu dynasty, come from. So perhaps that's why he feels especially connected to the place. And in Varnum Abbey, there's not just the grave to remind us of Beria, there's also a portrait of him too. It's like a mini statue of just his head and his face carved out in sandstone. A small picture of this was actually part of the episode picture for episode 38 at the bottom if you want to go and have a look at it. The carving was most likely made while Birger was still alive, and is therefore believed to be pretty accurate likeness of what he looks like. In the book Birger Magnusson, Den Sister Jarl, Birger Magnusson, The Last Jarl, published by Vestjutland's Museums, Mikael Perbel has written a chapter on what Birger might have looked like. His grave was opened in 2002, and when his skull and bones were analysed, it seems like his facial features corresponded pretty well with the carved image of him. He had a strong jaw and, in general, a pretty stern-looking face. Yeah, he certainly looks like a strong, authoritative person, but that was no doubt also how he wanted to be seen. In contrast, uh, he's depicted as having what we today might consider quite a silly haircut. Or maybe that's just my opinion. He's got like a weird bob cut uh, with the ends of his hair curled up like a J down by the end of his face. I don't think it's a great look, but hey, you do you, B.I.R. Yeah, it's James for y'all. <laughs> in, in his hair. Yeah. <laughs> you think he incorporated that in his hair? Yeah, exactly. It's not just the fact that we have a contemporary image of Birger that's quite unique, but it's also when it's placed at Varnum Abbey that speaks volumes about the man himself. Varnum Abbey was ravaged by a fire in 1234, and it was Birger who donated a lot of money to go towards the rebuilding. It was most likely in connection to the rebuilding work that began in the 1250s that the portrait was made. In the 1250s, Birger was of course at the height of his power, the statue of him is placed to the right of a similar image depicting Jesus, in what church historians see as a clear indication of his power linking him with Christ. Christ might rule in heaven, but Birger rules on earth, is what people would be expected to think when they looked up at the two statues. And despite of all the violent things he did, he was up there, literally, with his image next to Christ. And as such, Birger would be forgiven for his violent actions. 
this was an important message for Bia to send to his opponents that he was right in what he did always and he had religious backing for his actions. Now, where old Bioyo ended up after he had closed his eyes that final time in October 1266, that's not for us to say anything about. But one thing is clear. When he was gone from Earth, he entered the history books. He made a mark on Sweden like no one had done before him. He was a great statesman and a state maker. He was no doubt ruthless, some historians even describe him as a tyrant, and whether for good or bad, after him, the Swedish state would never go back to what it was. He had strengthened and centralized it like no one had managed to do before him. It's a quite telling sign of his power that he is the lost Jarl, No one will hold that title or have that exact role after him. We now see the introduction of this duke title being used instead. He has changed Swedish rule to such an extent that the position he held is not relevant to the same extent anymore. He didn't have those powers because he was Jarl, but because he was and able to control his family and the country in the way that he did. That's quite something. He also seemed to prefer this new title of Duke later in his life, so this would perhaps explain why nobody bothers to try and make a big claim for the Jarl title after his death. Definitely. And you could also argue that it would have been difficult, if not impossible, for anyone to follow in Börja's footsteps as a Jarl. There had, of course, been many Jarls before him, some of them very successful, like Börja Brusa, but no one quite like him, and no one who took the position and the power and the place in the kingdom to quite where Börja did. Perhaps it's not so strange that he would become known in history, therefore, as Birja Jarl, explicitly linking him to his job, almost like Jarl was his name, because he was Birja the Jarl, the one, unlike any other. And in many ways, the like just like this episode title suggests, Birja Jarl was, in reality, more like Birja King. When we return to the chronological journey through Swedish history, we'll see what happens when it's time for Börjar's oldest son, Valdemar, to de facto take over Sweden and cast off the reins of his father. Because even though he's been king for over 15 years at this point, he has really had nothing to do apart from be a puppet and a bit of legitimization for his father's rule. Will Valdemar be ready to take the helm? And what will his brothers do? Just like in Denmark, this seems to be a pretty dodgy situation, so there's much more to come next time. And just to give you a quick teaser, if you think the family drama in Sweden has been dramatic or the brothers in Denmark has been dramatic, you've seen nothing yet. Um, But before we cover that, we have something completely different in store for you. Ooh, exciting. Yes, no spoilers exactly (laughs) just yet, but it will be... uh, We need to touch on a few things that we've missed uh, in the story so far, mainly to do with certain islands that we need to talk about first. Yeah, exactly, but no more spoilers for now. And until next time... Uh, Don't forget to follow us on social media and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to us. 
Uh, and for now, it's bye-bye from us. Hey, Dor. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Chris. As I'm sure you can tell, uh, I don't think I sound too much like Orsa. Um, I'm just jumping in here before we play the outro music as we have a bit of a quick announcement for you. As ever, we recorded this episode a few weeks in advance before what's happened recently, and since we recorded this, we've done something quite exciting. We've finally made a website, and uh, I know a lot of people don't use social media or don't follow us on social media, so we thought it would be a good idea to put all of our lovely episode pictures, pictures from our trips out and about looking at Viking things all over Stockholm, uh, family trees that we've made and some fancy new maps somewhere where everyone can access them quite easily. And it is quite easy to remember where to find it because it's simply a aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com. So the name of the podcast.com. I've been busy making some maps showing Sweden in various periods that we covered so far, putting on some of the exciting places we've talked about, like Birka, Visby, Arlestena, Lund, and loads of other places. There's also a map of the counties, or landskap, as they are known in Swedish, of Sweden, so you can easily picture where things are taking place when we say things like, somewhere in Vestergötland, um, and it's been very helpful for me. Uh, some of them are quite hard to remember exactly where they fit in in the puzzle of Swedish geography. We've also created a sources page where we've made a massive long list of the Swedish and English sources we've used to research our episodes. I say most of them as we didn't quite keep hold of all of the very early sources from the Stone Age episodes, way back in episodes 1, 2, 3, 4, and maybe 5. We were running low on space on our old rubbish computer a while ago, so I deleted most of the PDFs of academic articles that we read for those episodes. But from the Bronze Age onwards, I think we've listed about 90% of what we've read. Health warning, there's there's quite a lot there, so you might have to scroll down for quite a while until you find something uh, interesting. If there's anything else you'd like to see on the website, do let us know. We're certainly going to keep making family trees and maps as we go, but yes, I'm sure there are plenty of other cool ideas of stuff that you'd like to see if uh, it's possible for us to do that. Um, One final thing that you may have already noticed is that we've updated the main logo for the podcast. So if it's looking a little bit different in your feed or on a list of podcasts or wherever you uh, listen to us from, that will be why. We've deliberately kept it very similar to the old logo, just updated it, made it a bit more trim and fancy using a map making software instead of just paint. Uh, So it should look a little bit better, but doesn't change the overall feel of what we're going for. So yes, thank you for listening to this very brief update. Hopefully you enjoy the website and find something interesting there and let us know what you think. And now it's time to say goodbye for real. Bye bye.